You're listening to the Eastside Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This sermon was recently preached at our church. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com. Now, enjoy today's sermon. Thank you, ladies, for that. And uh, I've got two waters today. That means uh, I have to preach until I'm done with both those waters, just so you know. Um, but, um, you know, that's a, that, that message really does sum it up uh, in that, you know, all of uh, it, this time of year, we make it about everything else. It really is about that baby in that manger. And uh, we can't lose sight of that. And I, and I will be really talking about that this morning in Luke chapter 2. And I hope you've already turned there. You got your place there. Once you do, would you mind just standing out of the reading, out of respect to the reading of God's word this morning? And... Uh, we're taking a break from Genesis again. I was reading Luke 2 this week, and I noticed really some similarities between what was happening in the context of Luke 2 and what's happening in our culture today, our country today. And so we're going to read Luke chapter 2, these first seven verses, and, and try to wrap our minds around maybe how the common people viewed the situation of the day and then make some applications. And I think we'll see there really are some good parallels. So Let's read Luke chapter 2, verse 1. It says, And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. And all went to be taxed, every one into his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea under the city of David which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn." And this may seem like a, a predictable passage to preach, but really it doesn't get preached very often except maybe around this time of year. And there's a, there are lessons here that I don't want to lose sight of. We can't let go of things that I think will help us. And my title for the message this morning is, I'm calling it Civil Problems, Spiritual Solutions. Civil Problems, spiritual solutions and that is that we have problems in our lives that that we think should be handled one way and yet God always handles our problems in a different way in a spiritual way and I'm going to see how that applies to our lives this morning let's pray father again we come to you and we are certainly asking for your help I don't even pretend to think that we can do this without you Lord the message is literally about that we we don't want to try to solve our problems with any solution other than, your, than what you have for us, Lord. So we come this morning with many problems. Every person here represented brings a, a long list of things that need to be dealt with and need to be fixed. And, and need, they need help with. And Lord, we could look to many places for answers. And yet there's only one place that we'll ever find the true answers. And that is in Jesus Christ. So God, today I pray that you'd help us to submit ourselves to that truth in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. And I love this time of year, and at, and at the same time, I grow weary of it at times, if you know what I'm saying. 
Yeah, I was, I was, I have to admit, I was a little grumpy when I went to Walmart and they were putting up Christmas displays before fall began. And really, they start way too early in my mind. I, I wasn't ready for the constant barrage of Christmas music everywhere you go. And I certainly, and I think I'll get some amens from the men here, did not need another season of Christmas Hallmark movies to begin already. Amen? You know, what amazes me is how this time of year brings out the advertisers. And they're, they're trying to convince us that, that of what we really need, this, this latest gadget and this toy, this this new workout machine that does a, the same thing as last year's model did, really. And what's interesting is among all of the ads, you, you never really hear about what we truly need. I mean, the birth of Christ was about God letting us know of our greatest need. And yet you hardly hear about that this time of year. And I, I want to look at Luke's account of Christ's birth and, and see what God presented as our greatest need. And so we're going to just jump right in and and look at verse 1, it says in Luke 2, verse 1, And it came to pass in those days. And I'm going to stop right there and make it clear. This is Luke writing this gospel. And, and many believe that Luke was a Gentile. And, and that his writing here was to the Greeks. And, and so facts meant a lot to the, to the author, Luke. And, and what he says here when he says it came to pass in those days. Is he's making it clear. He's not, he's, he's not writing a fairy tale. He's writing actual history. Luke chapter 2 really happened. Christ's birth is not once upon a time. These things truly happened. We have to be careful because the world at this time of year especially has taken Christmas and made it a fairy tale. And they lumped the birth of Christ in with the same category as Santa Claus. But this is more than a story, folks. What we're looking at today is history it really happened. It says, And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. That's what the verse says. That all the world should be taxed. Now, Caesar Augustus was the emperor of Rome in those days. And he had come into power in that region of the world when things were not going well. The Mediterranean basin, you might call it, uh, according to one commentator, was for decades marked by war and destruction, brutality and immorality. So this region of the world is full of war. It's full of, it was before, before Caesar Augustus, it was full of war. It was full of unsafe villages, unsafe road, roads. There was loose morality. There was murder and, there, and mayhem. So when Caesar Augustus came into power, he really took control. And he did a few very successful things in that he brought peace by defeating his enemies. He organized the government and he fixed the economy. It doesn't sound like a bad political strategy. If you're into politics these days, it sounds very familiar. Now, after Augustus came into power, another commentator uh, wrote that Jesus was born in the reign of Augustus, building on the foundations laid by his uncle, Julius Caesar. He brought peace. The internal peace and order which Augustus achieved endured with occasional interruptions for about two centuries. Never before had all the shores of the Mediterranean been under one rule and never had they enjoyed such prosperity. So to this point, that's Caesar Augustus's legacy. And it sounds like an ideal situation, except that Caesar Augustus was human. And when that kind of success happens in a person's life, they normally can't help but let it go to their heads. And Augustus did the same thing. 
Augustus began to demand absolute power. Rome was built as a republic, which is a nation governed by law, but he turned it into an empire or a nation governed by an emperor. So he stepped away from nation governed by law, and he, and he became the emperor. He became an empire. He was, he was born. Uh, Caesar Augustus was actually born with the name Octavius, but he arranged for his title to become Augustus, which, if you know what that means, it means exalted or sacred. So this man went from Octavius, but when he had some political success, he said, change my name to exalted or sacred, terms that were at one point reserved for the, the holy things or the religious things were now being applied to a man. And it didn't take long for the Jews to figure out that even though they were enjoying some temporary peace, it came with a price. This man who had everyone depended on to solve their problems actually added to their problems. Understanding that setting is important when you consider the world that Jesus Christ was born into. The Jews were desperate for a Messiah. They were ready for someone to come swooping in and solve their problems. They were living under the rule of an emperor who was thirsty for power and thirsty for control. But we see again that it came to pass in those days, verse 1, that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. So here's Caesar Augustus's first great act. A decree went out from Caesar that all the world should be taxed. The Roman Empire had spread throughout much of the known world. So the phrase all the world likely applies to the Roman Empire. It also says that all the world should be taxed. Now when we, when we say the word tax, especially in a place like this today, we might start to break out into hives. Nobody looks at taxes like a positive thing. It says all the world should be taxed. Now, we, we need to understand that this, this isn't so much like tax day on April 15th, but this is actually more of a census. And that every female, every male and every female and every person in every town under the jurisdiction of the Roman Empire were to go to their place of their birth or their hometown or where their family came from, and they were to register with the government. Now, the results of this, this census likely were used for tax purposes later. And if you know anything about government, government, they're not likely to miss out on tax money. So once they have your name, then you're in the system. But this event is likely just an enrollment, this event. And, and knowing Caesar Augustus's nature, even if it wasn't for taxes, he probably just wanted to gloat in the size of his kingdom. He probably just wanted to see, okay, here's how big my kingdom is. He wanted to sit back and just take note of his accomplishments. Now, whatever the purpose is, it's universally accepted that the citizens under Roman power would formally go register themselves and their wives and their children and their trades and their, their, uh, their, their money or their, their wealth, their, their kingdom, their estate, their, whatever it is that they had, they would go register that with the government and the government would know what they had. So Augustus either wants to admire his kingdom, he wants to increase his control, or he wants to tax the people. Whatever his motivation, this was all about himself. So can you imagine living in a world like that? Where politicians are ruled by ego or thirst for power and control and money? I, I just really can't imagine that. So sarcasm is strong with this one today, I'm just going to say. This starts to give us a look into the difficulty they were facing, though. See, they were living in their own land, but they were ruled by somebody else. 
And the emperor, he claimed to be some political savior, but that obviously wasn't solving their problems. Uh, Sure, the condition of the region was better since Caesar Augustus took control and he came in to save the day. He'd come in claiming that the government would answer all the problems of its citizens. But the Jews weren't finding that that to be true because even though they had peace and they had prosperity, they didn't have the freedom that they wanted. See, they had a civil problem. The Jews had, they didn't like being under Roman rule. They resented the, the, the Roman rule. They, they're not happy with giving, having to go register for a census. And these are God's people. I mean, just the, there's a great amount of pride in the Jewish people. There's a great amount of pride in Israel. And they're, they're God's people. And, and they answer to God. And they are only under God's rule. So then to have somebody else come in and rule them. A corrupt government, no less. It's, it's wearing on them. Some responded so bitterly against the Roman occupation that a group called the Zealots were formed. These, these Zealots, they were freedom fighters and, and they, would, they would withstand Rome at every turn. And something like a, like a census would have driven the Zealots to madness because they and their land belonged to God alone, not the Roman government. That was their mentality. And I understand it. These were pagans ruling over them. I mean, and Herod, Herod was the king in their region of the country. Herod answered to Caesar Augustus. He, uh, he answered to the Roman government himself. He was over the region. But honestly, he was no better than Augustus. He was immoral. He was insecure. Uh, he was threatened at every turn. And, and he would capture and crucify every threat. And if you want to know the kind of person he, Herod was... Uh, in Matthew chapter 2, Herod's the one that when he found out that Jesus Christ had been born, he sent out a decree to kill every baby under two years old because he was threatened by this new person, this new governor that might rise up against him. He was threatened. That's the nature of, of the Roman rule. No wonder they hated the ruling party. The Romans were wicked, but the zealots had their own imbalances uh, one group called the Sicarii, they would, they would carry daggers in, in their sleeves and they would walk in the marketplaces, in the public places, and they would, they would kill Roman soldiers. And, and they would even take those daggers and they would plunge them into the bodies of their own Jewish brethren if someone was a Roman sympathizer. That's the situation you've got in this day. You've got civil problems. You've got a civil problem on one hand. You've got the original problem, which is Caesar Augustus. And he thinks that more power is the answer to the problems. And then you have those responding to Augustus by taking matters into their own hands, thinking that daggers are the answers up their sleeves. You've got on one hand, you've got thirst for power. On the other hand, you've got a cry for revolt. The emperor wants tighter control. And these over here, they want to fight their way out of it. And it's a problem that sounds familiar, doesn't it? There's a tension here. The problem is that Augustus, both Augustus and the zealots were trying to solve civil problems with civil solutions. They were trying to solve the problems of their day with something that would not provide the answer. Augustus was trying to bring peace to a war-torn region. His answer was government control. The, the rebels were trying to prevent slavery by fighting back against injustice. And they're on opposite sides of the aisle, but they're both doing the same thing. They're hoping that civil solutions will solve civil problems. What they don't understand is injecting more of the same into the situation never fixes the situation. 
It's like when I was younger, I, I was in college, and I, was, I decided to make Kool-Aid one time, and, and so I, I made Kool-Aid. I don't know why I don't like Kool-Aid, but it's all there was to drink, I guess. So I was staying at somebody else's house at the time, and, and there was Kool-Aid, so I poured it in, and then I grabbed the sugar, and I put in as much sugar as I think a college guy would want in his Kool-Aid, okay? And the fork needs to stand up in it, I guess. So I added a bunch, and then I took a drink, and I was like, that is not enough sugar. So I put more in, and the more I put in, the worse it got, and it took me a while to realize I was adding salt to the Kool-Aid, not sugar to the Kool-Aid. I have not stepped foot into the kitchen to prepare anything since, okay? But you know, it's silly. We're laughing about it, but it really does emphasize the point I'm making today in that adding more of the same won't fix the problem. You know, Augustus thought more government fixes the problem. The zealots thought fighting back in our strength, that's going to fix the problem, but you can't fix a problem by looking for a solution within the same problem. Albert Einstein is the one that's credited by saying the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results. That's the world we're living in, though. I mean, we see the problems. We assume, well, we can find the answers from the same source that produced the problems. I'm not saying us. I mean, us as mankind, it's happening politically. Some are seeking more power, and they think that's the answer. Others think a shift in power will solve all the problems. And many more believe that resisting all power will be that which fixes it all. But here's the issue. You don't change something by adding more of the same. Man-made solutions won't fix man-made problems. But man's always struggled with it. It's always been our tendency to look to ourselves for solutions. And we naturally have a very man-centric worldview. We think we can fix our problems by bettering ourselves or becoming more educated or having more dialogue. You can, you, know, you can find all you need within yourself. Like some child who refuses help from his parents when he clearly can't perform a task. But on the other side, we also live in a culture that expects others to come to their rescue. They depend on programs to fix their problems and, and the government to come swooping in, but it's the same faulty view. They're depending on a man-made solution. It's a very man-centric approach to life. And if the problem lies with mankind, you, know, you won't find the solution with mankind. See, that view of fixing things, it simply perpetuates the problems that mankind has. It's a cycle. We have a problem, we look to ourselves or someone else to fix it, but the issue lies with man, so it doesn't fix the problem, and you have a cycle that perpetuates. You have to understand the nature of the problem before you can see it fixed. I think we can understand this better by looking at God's solution here in Luke chapter 2. See, does he inject more government into the problem? Nope. Does he he send in the troops? No. Does he send someone and set them on the throne? No. As God often does, his answer to our problems does not lie in the typical solutions. Look at verse 3. And all went to be taxed, everyone into his own city, and Joseph 
also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea, under the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. So you have this man, Joseph, and his very pregnant wife, Mary, and they're going on a trip. And we're not even looking today at Luke 1, where this process really started moving. That was last Sunday night. The angel Gabriel comes to Mary and, and told, tells her she's going to bear the Messiah and call his name Jesus, and, and he'll sit on the throne of government and rule and she was the one chosen to bear God's son this young teenage virgin girl she's selected for this incredible role and it was going to cost her and Joseph immensely but they accepted the call they accepted the commission so when we get to Luke 2 when we get to Luke 2 months have passed since that first encounter with the angel they lived in Nazareth a northern city sorry trying to get my thoughts here they lived up in Nazareth it's northern city in in Israel and that they had to travel 80 miles as we heard this morning we were talking about this morning in Sunday school they had to travel 80 miles this man and this very young very pregnant young teenage girl 80 miles and likely by foot I mean we're not told exactly I mean we like to think of her riding on it donkey or something but we don't know that for sure 80 miles so imagine leaving this building right now and going 80 miles south to downtown Sioux City Iowa on foot that's the journey they had to take now I was thinking about that this week and I was going to use Gabe and Stephanie um, as an illustration Stephanie in the last few weeks has been great with child and uh, Stephanie for those of you who aren't aware that Stephanie, Gabe and Stephanie had their baby yesterday, yesterday afternoon at 4.30, healthy baby, everything's great. And so I'm not sure where they are this morning, but you know, <laughs> not committed, that's fine. But I, if you're tuning in, I was, that's a joke, Gabe and Stephanie. <laughs> but Brielle Elizabeth, can't wait to see her, I'm excited about it. But I was going to use them as just an illustration. If, now, if God had asked Gabe and Stephanie to walk to Sioux City, Iowa, as Stephanie is great with child, that's the story we're talking about here. That's literally what was happening in this story, is that these two are asked to go this distance. It's not short. And, and, that's, and yet she's described as being great with child. And we might think, well, God's going to bring a warrior along. Somewhere along the way, they'll meet somebody on the road and a warrior will show up with a sword and he'll lead his people to victory. God's going to maybe raise an army to stand against Caesar Augustus. Well, no, so far, here's the story. A man and a pregnant young lady, they travel 80 miles to go register for a census. That's the story so far. Okay, well, well, maybe the surely, will, the surely the story will shift. Let's look at verse 6. It says, And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. So obviously they were there for a little bit, certain number of days before Mary was ready to have this baby. And surely there was a militia being organized now, right? I mean, surely the army is being prepared. There's a grassroots campaign and there, it's being initiated. Maybe there's a petition being passed to uh, recall Governor Herod or, or Caesar Augustus. There's something going on. No, well, that's what a man-centered worldview would assume, but there's no signs of that. Not in this story. Well, let's look at verse 7. It says, And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Okay, this is the climax of this thought unit right here. And I'm just thinking, what happened? 
I'm not expecting this. If I, I'm thinking about God intervening on his people's behalf. And he's go, going to send forth, as we heard earlier in Luke 1, he's going to send forth somebody that it says, the angel told Mary, he shall be great, he shall be called the son of the highest, and the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. He shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. So that's the promise. That's what they're assuming is coming. But, that, but there's no sign of it this, to this point. I mean, they're, they're going to be, all they get is they're, they're going to be taxed. That can't, can't make them happy. They've got to walk 80 miles. Surely that's no fun. And when they get there, Joseph's family didn't have enough room for them to sleep in the guest room or the guest quarters. So they had to be set up somewhere where the only place to lay their brand new baby is in a feeding trough. It's not a king, it's not a palace, it's not a warrior, it's not a, even a politician. It's a baby. And yeah, it's God in the flesh. But his first place of rest is a feeding trough. And if we're just reading this story and we understand the setting and we think we know what, what should be happening to solve their problems, we might start scratching our heads. And we might think that can't be right, but see, but we don't see things like God sees them. See, God is looking at their circumstances. Lock in right here as we make this important transition. As God looks into their circumstances, he could see that the Jews' greatest problem was not that they needed a warrior. They had some warriors called the Sakari, and they weren't helping the situation. It was not that they needed politicians. They had plenty of politicians. It wasn't even that they needed more religious leaders. There were plenty of religious leaders. They didn't need someone to sit on the throne. Herod, or Caesar Augustus was already there, the most powerful man on earth. No, as God surveyed the landscape, they didn't need someone on a throne or someone in the White House or someone rising up in the street. No, as he was looking at them, he wasn't seeing like Augustus and saying, well, I need more power. He wasn't looking at the Jews like, we've got to take it back. No, he was looking at someplace else. He was looking at the hearts of the people. And God could clearly see what no one else could see, and that is this, that man's greatest need was not that they needed to be saved from government oppression. Man's greatest need was that they needed to be saved from their sins. And if he had sent a warrior, or if God had sent a politician, or a king, it would have sent the message, little, not capital king, little case king. If God had sent a warrior, or a politician, or just another king, it would have sent the message that man's greatest problems can be answered by man-made solutions. But by sending a baby... God's message was clear, and that is man's greatest problem can only be fixed by God's solutions. And he doesn't solve our problems like we think he should. Folks, they didn't need more government. They didn't need a shift in power. They didn't need a bigger army because their biggest problem was spiritual. Their biggest problem was sin. And folks, today the only answer to sin is a spiritual solution. They didn't need a king. They didn't need a politician. They didn't need an army. They needed a savior. And folks, God doesn't fix our problems with man-made solutions. He sent his son to be born as a baby, God in the flesh, but he sent 
he, he allowed that baby to be born to a virgin. It wasn't a man-made solution. It was divine in nature. And that baby grew up and, and as a carpenter's son, totally out of, I mean, off the scene, out of everybody, off everybody's radar. He was unknown to the world until he was about 30. And then for three and a half years, he spent teaching in Judea and Galilee. But because they were still looking for civil solutions to solve their problems, they, were, they didn't see him for who he really was. They wanted a king. They wanted a warrior. They, they wanted somebody to, to rescue them. And so they rejected him. They claimed he taught heresy. They took him before Pilate who had him crucified. And as he hung there dying on the cross for their sins, they still didn't see it. In their man-made worldview, they were still looking for a king or they were still looking for a warrior. And they didn't know that all they needed was a savior. And yet God's message rang out back then and it still does today. No matter your problem, your answer is Christ. Folks, no matter your problem today, your answer is Christ. We have all kinds of problems nationally, and we've got cultural divisions, and we've got political problems and turmoil. We've got hatred, we've got violence, we've got crime, and, and all of those symptoms can be traced back to spiritual problems. And there's only one answer capable of fixing all of those things, and his name is Jesus Christ. See, here's how, here's how you know he's the answer. Because your greatest problem, folks, your greatest problem in your life is sin. And in Ephesians chapter 1, speaking about Christ, the Bible says, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Listen, you know the answer to your sin problem? The answer to your sin problem is not that you work harder. It's not that you do more good works. It's not that you perform these certain tasks to please somebody. The answer to your sin problem is a man who died on a cross for your sins and his name is Jesus Christ. Your answer is Christ. He doesn't just forgive us of our sins. He makes us new. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. He came offering you new life. He can fundamentally change who you are. And you've been addicted to some substance or you've been addicted to gambling and you've been trying your whole life to overcome this, this sin in your life and you can't seem to do it or you've got an anger problem at home and you and your relationship with your spouse is not doing very well and you've tried all the programs and you've tried all the therapy and you've tried all of these answers, these man-made solutions and not one of them has helped you because you've missed the fact that it's Jesus Christ who when he enters into our life changes us into a new creature and he can fundamentally change who you are but as long as you're seeking help from man-made solutions you'll never find the change you need. Amen. Jesus Christ can change you. And as if that's not enough, Jesus Christ forgives, he changes us, and he takes us to heaven for eternity. First John 5, 12, he that hath the Son hath life. John 14, 6, Jesus saith unto them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, that whosoever should believe, believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Not only does, not only, listen, not only can God take care of your sin, and not only can he fundamentally change who you are, but in doing so, he will take you to heaven for eternity with him. He's the only source of e eternal life. And yet we're looking for man-made solutions in that regard too. And the only answer you'll find, Jesus says, I am the way. 
Colossians 1 27 says, Jesus Christ in you, the hope of glory. He, he will deal with your sin and he will change you from who you are into what you're supposed to be. And he'll give you the hope of heaven. He can fix your greatest problem. He can make you new. He can take you to heaven. And I just have to say this. If he can fix our greatest problem, there's nothing else he can't handle. Your family, if it's in shambles today, the answer is Christ. He's the only one who can forgive your sins and change you and give you hope. Christ in you, the hope of glory. For the marriage on its last leg, the answer is Christ. He provides forgiveness and change. For the one who's lost all hope, the answer is Christ. He brought hope to the hopeless. For the man or the woman who you failed so much and you don't think anybody could ever forgive or change you. No, your answer is Christ. He forgives and changes and gives you hope. For the one who's not sure that God can accept them because of their past and because of their sin. Your answer is Christ. He came to offer you change and forgiveness of sin and eternal life and hope. And while the world looks to fix your problems with man-made solutions, Jesus Christ, if you were to simply allow him to enter the picture of your life as unassuming as he is and as unknown as he is and as unheralded as he is, he is still the only one with the answer to your greatest problems. And he offers solutions today. I think about coronavirus and this year has brought so much underlying angst and anger and and disunity to the surface and and I think everyone is posturing and they're blaming somebody else and and they think a shift in power will solve the problems but more politicians and a vaccine won't fix our problems see you need to you know what we need the most if we're going to read Luke chapter 2 we need Jesus Christ we have a civil problem and it won't be fixed by civil solutions we need a spiritual solution and his name is Jesus and everyone thinks, well, government policy and, and the vaccine, this is, I'm not, what, if you get the vaccine, I'm not even saying anything about that. I'm just saying that's not the answer to our country's problems. The sickness itself is a result of sin. I mean, disease and death, those are the results of sin. Even the coronavirus is a reminder that our greatest need is not mandates and, and the government swooping in. Our greatest need is a savior. And I'm not downplaying sickness, uh, but the greatest disease in a man's life is not a virus. It's sin. God didn't send a physical doctor to give you medicine. He sent the great physician to heal your soul. And guess what his name is? Jesus Christ. All the turmoil. Everyone thinks peace treaties and new government leaders are going to solve our problems. And listen, the reason we have turmoil is because men are sinners. And they haven't placed their faith in Christ to forgive and change them and give them hope. And until they do, there will never be peace. Because they're controlled by a sin nature, which we all have. But listen, this is a season in which we talk about peace. Peace on earth. Let me just say this, peace is available. A lot of people that have peace on earth right now. It's those that have placed their faith in Jesus Christ to save them from their sins. You can have peace in your life even amidst turmoil because peace is available through Christ. God didn't send a warrior or a politician to give you peace. He sent a savior because that's what you needed. 
you got personal things in your life. And listen, I don't know what you're dealing with. Money problems, you've got addictions, and you've got a problem with a relationship. You've got a messy life. And I understand that those things happen. But listen, you will not find answers among man-made solutions. It's impossible. The answer is Christ. God didn't send a, a financial advisor I have nothing against financial advisors. I think they're great and helpful. But if that was your greatest need, Jesus would have come um, as an accountant. But he didn't. He came as a savior because your greatest need is sin. And, and I'm not against programs that try to help people, but God didn't send some man touting 12-step programs. I'm not even saying that they don't help. I'm simply saying that if God had wanted, if God had thought, well, there's a 12-step program that is the answer to your greatest problems, he would have sent somebody with a book and a program and a way to set it up in all the directions, but he didn't. He sent a Savior because our greatest need is sin. And, and listen, I know marriages are, marriage can be a struggle, and there are a lot of people that are struggling in their relationship. And listen, if God had said, well, your greatest need is to have healthy communication, he would have sent a marriage therapist. But he didn't. He sent a Savior because that's your greatest need. And I'm not downplaying all of those other needs. I'm simply saying that that wasn't God's solution. And according to Luke 2, he sent a Savior. He didn't send Oprah. He didn't send Dr. Phil. Those might be your favorite shows. He sent a Savior. He sent Jesus Christ. Because his message to man was that Jesus Christ is the answer to your greatest problems. If God sent a Savior, then every answer we need can be found in Christ. And the truth is, here's the truth, so many of our peripheral problems like money and relationships and family and, and depression and addiction and getting along with people, they would be solved if we each decided to simply insert Christ into our situation. Once you're forgiven and changed and you're given the hope of heaven, it's amazing how many of the other problems in your life seem to fall by the wayside. To all of your greatest problems, let me just say the answer is Christ. Last week, the, I, we, the quartet sang that song, The Answer is Christ. And I'm just into songs today. I sang a song in Sunday school, and I'm not going to sing this one, but let me just read you the words to the song sung last week. I've heard the questions, seen blank expressions. I felt the pain that sin has caused. I've dealt with heartache, and I've watched the hearts break of families that suffer great loss. And I've sometimes wondered about the stress we are under. And I'll admit, I've even asked why. But then I recall the answer to all of life's questions is Jesus Christ. And that second verse says, you may be hurting, desperately searching for answers you can't seem to find. So many choices Wrestling with voices, you're looking for some peace of mind. Feeling the shame from past mistakes as the tears fall from your eyes. Well, don't be discouraged. My friend, take courage. Your answer is Jesus Christ. He is the hope for the hopeless. The water 
the giver of life. He is the strength for the weary, love for those cast aside. He gives rest to the restless. He gives freedom from fear. And when things seem impossible, know that he's near. And for all of the problems of life, the answer is Christ. You don't rhyme very well, do you? (laughs) The answer is Jesus. No, the answer is Christ. It rhymes with life. But you get the point, don't you? If your greatest problem was... I mean, if your greatest problem was finances, um, God would have sent an advisor. If your greatest problem was therapy, he would have sent a therapist. If your greatest problem was, was that you just, you need a, to fix, I don't know, your house. He would have sent a, a carpenter. That would have been his lifelong job. But listen, there's all kinds of things in our life that we think are the big problems in the moment. And all of those things... Usually they're secondary, and our primary problem is because our greatest problem is sin, and we need a Savior. The answer is Jesus Christ. Let me just give you three quick takeaway truths this morning. Number one, Jesus Christ is the answer to your greatest problems. You say, well, that's not very profound. You've said that a hundred times, and I could say it a hundred more, and it wouldn't be wrong ever. Jesus Christ is the answer to your greatest problems. Two, if he can handle your sin... There's no other problem outside of his control. If he can fix your greatest problem, do you think he can't fix your marriage? He can. If he can fix your sin, do you think he can't bring your wayward child back to the fold? Absolutely he can. And if he can take care of your sin, which is your greatest need, do you really think he can't take care of your finances? He can. Third, once he solves your greatest problem you'll find that so many of your other problems take care of themselves. The reason we're in the mess we're in is because we have not allowed God to take care of our greatest problem, which is sin. So I'm asking you this morning, have you placed your faith in Jesus Christ as a Savior because that's what you need the most? If you were to die today, would you die and go to heaven? Or would you die and be separated from God in a place called hell? Listen, if you've never received Christ to take care of your greatest problem of sin, then you will forever live separated from God for eternity. So it's time for some in here to come and say, listen, I've been trying to fix all the peripherals, but I've ignored my greatest need, and that is a Savior. And then for the Christian, you've been trying to fix all these things in your life with man-made solutions. It never works. You know what you need? You need to go to the one who fixed your greatest problem, and that was your sin. If he can fix that, there's nothing else outside of his control. Let's stand together. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Thank you for your attention this morning. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com.